What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 6, Kingdoms and Kingship in Anglo-Saxon England. This week, for personal reasons, I have to offer a shorter episode than usual. So I wanted to offer you a couple of episodes, first one this week, then next week, that will help you to better follow the rest of the podcast. This episode, I will be introducing some of the main ideas and sources for Anglo-Saxon kingship. In the next episode, I'll be introducing you to the organisation of the medieval church. After that, we'll go back to a chronological approach by looking at the Augustinian mission. So, as mentioned in episode four, later writers reflected the political situation of their own day back onto the earliest Anglo-Saxon period, in the shape of legendary rulers such as Ichel and Serdic. These rulers helped to legitimise the ruling dynasties of various kingdoms, and by extension, the authority of those kingdoms over others. Despite how this may appear, it would be incorrect to see these figures as cynical ploys at political legitimacy, although they certainly could be that. Rather, they probably reflect something about a dynasty's and a kingdom's traditions about its own origins. The material history of Anglo-Saxon kingship is much more ambiguous, however. We cannot really pinpoint a moment when disparate tribal groups coalesced into kingdoms. The usual start date for kings among the Anglo-Saxons is tied to the emergence of so-called princely burials in the early 6th century. These are graves that stand out due to the wealth that they display at a time when grave goods were becoming less common. The most famous example is the 7th century burial at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk. The man buried there was buried with lavish treasures of intricately worked gold and other metals, including silver imported from the eastern Mediterranean. There were also leather clothes, wooden cups, and a gaming piece carved from bone. The objects themselves are a diverse mix of English, British and imported, as well as serving a variety of military, domestic and religious functions. What stands out most of all, though, is the military regalia. At his side lay a shield, sword and several spears. At his feet was a full-length coat of mail, and next to his head was the famous Sutton Hoo helmet. The man buried here was extremely wealthy, but he was also clearly a warrior. He, along with other occupants of princely burials, may tell us something about who the earliest kings of the Anglo-Saxons were. Sutton Hoo and other such burials correlate closely with the image of ideal kingship found in several pieces of Old English poetry. The most famous is Beowulf, in which the good kings, Shield, Hrothgar and Beowulf himself, are all characterised as warriors who subdue their enemies and who are generous in giving the spoils of war to their followers as gifts. While there's no way to know for certain how accurately this reflects the emergence of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, the military hue and great wealth of the Sutton Hoo burial, and others like it, suggest that the image may not be too far from reality. In this image, the various local tribal chieftains of the migrant peoples would accrue wealth through raiding and trade, which could attract followers. By gifting treasure to these followers, a chief could amass strength through the cultural expectation that a gift must be duly reciprocated. To maintain this power, though, a leader would need to acquire more treasure, and the best means to do this was through war with other chiefs. It is in these wars among chiefs that we find the seeds of Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, which came into existence through a kind of survival of the fittest. This probably was also the foundation of what the Anglo-Saxon chronicler in the 9th century 
called the Bretwalder, a term for a single ruler who held a position of dominance over the other rulers of the Anglo-Saxons. The chronicler was drawing on Bede, who, in his ecclesiastical history, offers a list of seven kings who he claims were dominant over all others between the 5th century and Bede's own day. Importantly, though, he doesn't use the term Bretwalder, which seems to be a creation of King Alfred's court in the 9th century. It's unlikely that there was any kind of defined position of overkingship among the early Saxon rulers, but the de facto dominance of one or several especially powerful rulers must have been a reality, and probably was the foundation for later kingdoms. But how can we differentiate a kingdom from a tribal confederation? This is problematic, since there is no clear answer. Obviously, a principle of monarchy is essential. Whether this was a dynastic or elective monarchy is not clear, though. The first Anglo-Saxon king we encounter, Athelbert of Kent, was apparently succeeded by his son Eadbald, who was himself succeeded by his son Eochenbert. This seems to indicate some kind of dynastic succession, probably a result of Frankish influence, where dynastic rule seems to have been the norm since the reign of Merovec in the 450s. Elsewhere, such as in Mercia, it doesn't seem that there was a dynastic monarchy. Certainly, some families produced multiple rulers, such as the family of King Pibba, which also produced kings Penda and Peada, or Offa, who groomed his son Edgefrith as his heir in emulation of Carolingian practice. But none of these could ever claim a monopoly on the throne, and the kings of Mercia were often unrelated to each other. Whether this saw a power struggle upon each king's death, or whether the successor was chosen in advance, is not clear. While an essentially monarchical principle was common among all Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, whether it was dynastic or elective seems to have varied based on regional influences. Since, as noted, Kent was heavily influenced by the Franks, it makes sense that their practices would be similar to those of the Franks. Meanwhile, Mercia, which emerged only late onto the scene, seems to show some remnants of tribal confederation. Regardless of whether there were dynasties and when they emerged, there is a case to be made that kingdoms didn't exist among the pre-Christian Anglo-Saxons in a way that we would recognise. This is because, prior to Christianity, we are faced with a pre-literate society, and it was only after the establishment of Christian schools that the written material of royal bureaucracy could develop. Chief among these in England were written laws and written land grants. In both cases, there probably were oral equivalents that existed prior to the coming of Christianity, but these are entirely lost, and the introduction of writing allowed for laws and grants to be preserved and circulated in ways that were previously not possible. The first written law code of Anglo-Saxon England was promulgated by King Athelbert of Kent with the aid of St. Augustine. The means of creating a law code seem to have remained fairly static across Anglo-Saxon history. The king would meet in council with his advisers, called the Witan, which means in Old English the wise, as well as his bishops and nobles to discuss issues facing the realm. The appropriate responses would be recorded and written down by a scribe as a law code. Prior to the reign of King Alfred in the 9th century, the evidence for Anglo-Saxon lawmaking is quite patchy, but what survives, chiefly from Kent and Wessex, indicates a general trend of increasing royal power. If we look at the payments due to kings, then Athelbert makes relatively few demands on his people. Other early lawmakers like Whitred and Ina make more demands on their people, and Ina especially placed a much greater emphasis on physical and monetary punishment than the other kings did. 
Some key concepts of early Anglo-Saxon law include weregild, meaning literally man-gold, which was the price to be paid in recompense for the injury or death of a person. This weregild was calculated based on one's social rank, with a noble or priest having a high weregild, while a peasant had a very low weregild. To whom weregilds were owed changed. In earlier laws, it was to be paid to the family or owner of the injured party, while in laws from King Alfred on, it was to be paid to the crown. Related to weregild was the concept of feud. This is something of a hallmark of Germanic law, most notably in Iceland, where blood feuds were a major concern of many saga writers. In early laws, there were some attempts to limit the ability of feuds to spiral out of control, but it wasn't until later law codes that the necessity of feud was undermined when the kin of a criminal was freed from responsibility for their actions. Cases would be heard in local courts headed by local judges and nobles. Besides local officials, in later Anglo-Saxon England there developed the office of the Shire Reeve, or Sheriff as it is today, a royal official tasked with maintaining order and representing the king at the Shire level. Besides secular laws, there were also ecclesiastical laws, mainly canon law, with their own courts overseen by bishops. Kings tended to be uncomfortable with this autonomy, but reformers were often keen that priests and monks be tried by ecclesiastical rather than secular law. Written laws enabled kings to make their wills known to more people, and thus effectively allowed for greater centralisation. It also allowed for the creation of legal precedent, which was used by Alfred in the creation of his law code in the 9th century. It is not always clear how many early kings issued written laws. Certainly those of Kent did, and so did Ina of Wessex. Alfred in his laws also makes reference to the laws issued by Offer of Mercia, but these have not survived, and it has been speculated that they were not in fact laws at all, but consisted of the report written by representatives of the Pope, who came to examine the Mercian church in 786, and who presented their reform recommendations at a council in that year. After Alfred, it became common for kings to issue several law codes throughout their reign, addressing different issues as they arose. History is the greatest adventure story, but does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Besides laws, the other major branch of royal bureaucracy was the land grant. This document, also referred to as a charter, recorded the gifting or exchange of land between the crown and other parties, such as nobles or the church. It shouldn't be confused with a land lease, which is a record of a temporary lending of land since a grant was permanent, while a lease was purely temporary. It can be difficult to use charters as evidence, since there was a lively business in forging them throughout the Anglo-Saxon period and afterwards. The vast majority of charter evidence survives from the records of various major churches throughout England. Thus, the main source for charters was also the one most able to forge them, i.e. the church. We do have charters claiming to be issued by King Athelbert, but they are all forgeries, as can be seen by their use of terms or legal formula that only developed much later. 
The authenticity of charters is made even more difficult to determine by the fact that many of them survive only in later copies, rather than in their original forms. The earliest original charter comes from the reign of King Hlothera of Kent in the 670s. There is much debate over when charters were introduced into England, however. The Hlothera evidence coincides with the career of Theodore of Canterbury, a Greek who served as Archbishop from 668 to 690, who is credited with bringing Italian land grants to England, which subsequently were adapted into Anglo-Saxon charters. The chief reason for claiming an Italian model is that Anglo-Saxon charters never record the name of the scribe, a feature that we do find in Frankish charters. Some scholars have pointed out that this is an argument from silence, and that it therefore is hardly conclusive. In response, these scholars argue for an earlier introduction, possibly by the Augustinian mission, since when Anglo-Saxon charters emerge in the 670s, they already reflect regional practices, which would not be the case if they were only introduced in the 670s. Rather, we would expect them to all be the same, which clearly they are not. It's difficult to give a satisfactory answer, since all of the pre-670 charters are undoubted forgeries, but it seems possible that some kind of land grant existed before that date that just hasn't survived. Another unique feature of Anglo-Saxon charters is their reliance on divine rather than monetary punishment to ensure the security of their terms. In Francia, those who violated the charter's terms were to pay a fine to the crown that was set down in the charter itself. In England, those who violated the charter were threatened with punishment in the afterlife for incurring God's wrath, with no reference to money at all. This may confirm that charters came to England mainly through the church, but it is also important for how kingship was understood, since the main party responsible for guaranteeing a charter was God, not the king. This despite charters needing to be witnessed by the king and his council, as well as the court, the church, and the parties involved in the transaction. The overall anonymity of Anglo-Saxon charters raises another issue. Since forgeries were so common, how could the authenticity of a charter be guaranteed? They didn't have any identifiers to demonstrate their authenticity like some Frankish charters did. It seems instead that charters were assumed to be genuine and that possession of them was enough to prove ownership. This is seen most clearly in the Font Hill letter, which records a case that occurred in the late 9th and early 10th centuries. In this case, we see many aspects of the Anglo-Saxon legal system at play. Chiefly, we see that charters were believed to be genuine without need for external evidence. This may seem unworkable, but the letter also highlights the importance of charters existing within a complex legal culture based around witnesses and oaths. Since the main figure in the letter, Helmsdan, was known to be licentious and deceptive, he was unable to make a valid oath, and thus required others with good reputations to make an oath for him. In this case, it was the Ealdorman Ordlaf. When Helmstan claimed a piece of land through a charter in his possession, it was not believed to be genuine simply by default. Rather, its genuineness was sworn to by Ordlaf in a ceremonial oath-swearing. This required the swearer to place their hand on an altar, which would contain saints' relics, and swear before the witnesses and God himself that their oath was genuine. The fact that Ordlaf had to swear the oath on Helmstan's behalf did not invalidate this claim, since the charter was still being sworn to be genuine. And for all his character flaws, the letter doesn't give us enough information to judge whether Helmstan's charter was indeed genuine. 
the vast, vast, vast majority of charters that survive were written on behalf of kings. Private individuals must have also owned and produced charters, but these haven't survived since they were not of interest to the large churches that preserve most charters in their archives. Much as with laws, charters reflect the shifting nature of kingship in Anglo-Saxon England. The Anglo-Saxon charters were based on the implicit distinction between bookland and folkland. Bookland was land recorded in a charter and thus held in possession by a charter holder. Folkland was land not recorded in a charter and it was thus held by unwritten custom with its outputs going to the king, who alone could turn folkland into bookland. Another category, loanland, was the land lent by the owner of a charter to another person for a defined period of time, usually three lifetimes. This raises the issue of the use of these lands. The output of folkland in produce and labour went to the king. Land that had been alienated, that is given away in a charter, would no longer yield raw materials or labour for the king. So in response, the kings of Mercia developed what were called the three necessities of road maintenance, bridge maintenance and military service. These necessities allude to the changing economy and power structure of Anglo-Saxon England. The king was held to hold certain inalienable rights over land and its occupants, which do not seem to have been fully codified prior to this. Likewise, we see the increasing importance of infrastructure, such as roads and bridges, which served both a military and an economic role by making travel easier. The working of this system implies a powerful role for the crown, yet it wasn't until the 10th century that this role was given its full form in the royal monopoly on charter production. Prior to this, there is little consistency in the original charters that survive, but during the reign first of Athelstan and then from King Edgar on, there existed a chancery at court responsible for the drafting of all royal charters, giving them all a consistent language and style. Under King Edgar especially, we find multiple scribes at work, but the overwhelming impression is one of the crown now having a fully developed monopoly, reflective of the king's unique role as the distributor of bookland. Earlier kings, while still having a unique authority over land, do not seem to have employed a single chancery. Instead, they probably delegated the production of charters to church scriptoria throughout their kingdoms. This is similar to the primacy of God over the king seen in the texts themselves, but where that was a consistent feature throughout Anglo-Saxon history, kings eventually broke free of dependence on various churches and cultivated a professional chancery of their own. Charters were essential to later Anglo-Saxon kingship, as were law codes. They were the foundation of the royal system as it came to exist after the conversion to Christianity. In essence, they were continuations of older practices. Kings had always made laws. They had also always kept their followers' loyalty through gift-giving. Though gifts changed from treasure to land, the essential logic was the same. Through the witness lists attached, they confirmed the hierarchies of power within the court itself, hierarchies that were also cemented through the councils at which charters and laws were created. Through the written word, kings expanded their power and cemented the dynamics that had always existed, while later kings used the written word to maximise their authority. In essence, the basic logic of the system remained the same. And we could wonder, perhaps, deep down, is it still the same today? Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. 
If you've enjoyed it, and if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, then please leave a positive rating on iTunes or wherever you found it. It helps us a lot to get more visibility. But once again, I'm your host, Tom Kearns. This has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Thank you for listening. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.